0: Good evening. Amen. 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 Brother John Ford mentioned, I uh, suppose, uh, uh, I wish that he were here because I'd like him to hear it, uh, that he mentioned in passing the topic that I'm going to be ministering on tonight. He mentioned this morning that grief can be a bondage in the life of a Christian. And as normal as grief is, what we do with grief is very important. And I feel compelled by the Holy Spirit to pause again the little series through Galatians that we've been having. So I'm going to ask all of you to open your Bibles with me to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 5, I'm only going to read two verses today, and if you know me, you know that I don't do that often. Uh, I think that a couple of weeks ago was the second time I've stood behind this pulpit and actually ministered from an entire chapter. I read a lot when I preach, but I feel like this is more topical than I usually minister. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, reading verses 3 and 4. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 are, as some have dubbed and rightly so, the greatest sermon ever preached in human history because it is Christ's sermon. It is literally a message that Jesus Christ preached here on earth that you and I have access to today because of the Holy Spirit's role in the assembling of the Scriptures The Sermon on the Mount, in essence, is the description of a true, unadulterated, 100% child of God. The Sermon on the Mount is the ultimate characteristic of a true Christian, who we are supposed to be. When it comes to separating the Mosaic Law of the Old Covenant and the Law of Christ for the New and Everlasting Covenant... It's wise of us to reference the Sermon on the Mount when it comes to determining what exactly God wants us to do in the covenant that we're under. Because the Sermon on the Mount covers just about everything we need to know. There's obviously more to the Sermon on the Mount than describing a Christian. But, if anything, the Sermon on the Mount describes someone who, in essence, is perfect. Someone who is absolutely perfect. Perfect. It is describing the perfect man. And the dilemma with that is obvious. None of us are perfect. And on this earth, as we teach here, as long as the sin presence is there, we will never be perfect here on earth. We will be perfect in heaven because of what Christ has done for us. We will be able to be perfect in heaven. But the Apostle Paul would write to the church at Rome in Romans 6, 7, and 8, Basically, how sanctification happens. And I've heard it wisely said don't be surprised if God has to take you through Romans 6, 7, and 8 before he brings you to Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Because you and I are a work in progress, and that's a good thing. But before Jesus, I won't really be talking about sanctification per se tonight. But what I want to focus on are the two first verses of the Sermon on the Mount. Before Jesus goes into any further detail about anything, this sermon preached by the second person of the triune Godhead begins like this in Matthew Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. It says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. I'd like to preach to you a message tonight with the help of the Holy Spirit, a message titled, The Grieving Christian. The Grieving Christian. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for this day that you've given us, God, and I ask that you give me strength and wisdom to say what you have me say tonight. I ask that you give all of us, myself included, the strength and the wisdom to receive from your word, to have your word minister to us, God. Show us the gospel importance of these words that we have read tonight, and show us, Lord, through your word, how you are our great comforter. We thank you for all that you've done for us, and we bless your name. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. 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 From what I've been able to understand, the Oxford Dictionary, which is basically the dictionary that, that you find whenever you Google a word, Defines grief as a deep sorrow, especially caused by someone's death. And I think just based off of that definition alone, we can come to the conclusion, not just by me telling you that, but out of experience, that grief is a very, very normal thing, including in the Christian life. Christians are not superheroes. We are people. We are redeemed people, and we are a people who are being sanctified by God. But we experience things that people experience, and one of these things that we experience often is grief. Right now, the United Kingdom, as a whole nation, are all grieving over the passing of Queen Elizabeth. And I just mentioned to one of my classes, I believe this past week, how before she died, and from what I understand, her death was very sudden. There was no real illness that she had. She just she just, I guess her body failed or whatever you would call it and she passed away. And just last week, I told one of my classes that how historical of a woman Queen Elizabeth was because she, is, she was the longest reigning monarch in Britain's history, which also makes her the second longest reigning monarch in all of world history. She got to see and lead that nation through many very important times for that nation And now that once living piece of history is gone. And the entire nation of uh, of Great Britain is grieving over that. Charles III was crowned the king of England. And it's weird. It's weird saying that that England has a king because for all of our lives it had a queen. But life goes on. Earlier this summer I lost... Uh, I suppose you could say in the middle of the summer uh, Y'all already know I lost my dog, Troy His death was also very sudden He kind of came out of nowhere He wasn't old Uh, He was a very good boy A very happy animal uh, Glorified couch cushion And absolutely useless in every way imaginable But he was a good boy He was a good dog And everybody loved Troy But we don't really know what happened. Our vet said that it might have been a poisonous snake bite that killed him. Very sudden, and very, very, very sudden death. And it's weird, everything that happened after he died. I never grieved over an animal like I did Troy. Um, And it was interesting. I remember just, I believe it was the second night after he died, I had a nightmare where I just relived his death over again. And when I woke up, it's interesting because when I wake up, it's a slow burn, it's a slow process. My mind has to register that I am awake and then the rest of my body just kind of has to catch up with my mind as I just kind of roll out of bed. But this morning, it was different. I literally just had to, the moment I woke up, I literally had to say to myself, he's already dead. And I told myself that to comfort myself because I didn't want to bear the thought of him suffering again. This day is the anniversary of a day that our nation grieves. On September the 11th, 2001, this nation had to watch some of, one of the most shocking events in all of human history. This is a holiday, not a holiday, goodness, it's a day of grief for this country because we mourn so many lives who were lost by such a small group of people in such an evil act of terrorism on our nation. Grief is very, very prominent this time of the year, especially now. Some years more than others, but this general time of the year is often just a time of grief, whether it's remembering something that happened in the past or whether we're going through something right now. Mm-hmm. This summer, the Mahan family, as well as this church as a whole, had to cope with the loss of Sister Mary. And a week after her funeral, a friend that I have in Illinois that I met in college and we still keep in touch he messaged me just a week after their funeral and he told me to keep him in prayer because he had lost a dear friend that he went to church with and Sister Sue uh, recently having to deal with the loss of your daughter and Sister we're praying for you and your entire family Uh, grief is normal everybody goes through grief it's a thing that we go through And not just when it comes to somebody's physical death. Last fall, my last fall semester at JSBC, there was, I can't tell, I don't really remember if it was towards the beginning or the middle of that semester. But I'll never forget this because of just everything that happened. But it was a Tuesday and it was raining outside. I had been to my first class. I was waiting out in one of the little hallway areas at the college building, waiting for my next class to start. And just out of nowhere, I hear another student say that somebody very important that the Lord used to minister to all of us had suddenly renounced his faith and that he had left the ministry. And it just it hit me like a fright train, but I didn't... I just saw this person last week, hello, and I didn't know what to believe. That, on top of the fact that I was already hearing different stories about what had happened with this matter, provoked me to privately message one of the professors and ask if I could meet him in his office just to talk about something important. And he allowed me to, and I went to this individual's office privately and I just asked for clarity because, like I said, I had already heard different stories about what happened, and that is a major thing for someone to suddenly announce to you. So I asked him just clarity: what what happened? And this individual told me everything. That he was very transparent with me about what had recently happened, and I was thankful that he was transparent with me about it because I had I, at least I had closure. And it was true that this individual who was such I dare say bizarre intellect when it came to the things of the Word of God, someone who seemed to be such a gifted preacher, someone who seemed to have been anointed, who was seemed to have been willing to allow the Holy Spirit to take over a session, a teaching session, a preaching session, whatever you would call it, that this person had renounced their faith in Jesus Christ and They are no longer a Christian and now they are an atheist or they profess atheism right now. I never never would have expected that. That same day, I had to take one of my best friends to the airport because he had learned that same day that his father had passed away due to complications with the coronavirus. And it was one of those things, because this still is, a very dear friend of mine. And it was one of those things where you don't really grieve for the person who has passed away, but you grieve with the person that you know. And it was one of those things. I hated that day so much. I absolutely despised it. It was a day of grief, for sure. The very next week, a very dear sister in the Lord that we all know, had to go back home for a short amount of time to be with her family because her mother had passed away. It was just awful. It was one of those seasons in life where nothing bad is really happening to you personally, but everything going on around you, you're just like, why all at once? Why Why all at once? And for just a a while, it seemed like all anybody could do was pray and grieve Because people were dying physically and spiritually, just death. And all we could do was just grieve. Grief is something that happens in the Christian life, and I dare say that Christians know grief better than anyone else because we see what happens whenever somebody renounces their faith in Christ. They die. Now, the Lord can graft them in again. Peter would talk about that, it's possible, but they die. Whenever they renounce their faith. And then whenever we have to watch a loved one go on to be with the Lord. Even when we're certain that they are with the Lord right now. There's still that little bit of grief in our heart. Because they're not with us anymore here on earth. And we won't see them again until we get to heaven. Grief is normal. It's something that everybody goes through. It's something that... Christians know very well, even though we have that blessed assurance, that hopeful promise of going to heaven to be with Jesus, that we will see our loved ones who were saved again one day in heaven with Christ. I mean, that's going to be the greatest, I mean, it, they, they call it a dream come true, but it, it is, and it, it, it's, it's reality, that's, the, that's reality for us. But grief is something, as Brother John said this morning, as normal as it is, the issue that I think we have a lot when it comes to talking about grief is not really taking time to realize that grief is not really the problem often, but how people handle grief can be very problematic. Grief can either be something that you allow the Lord to lead you through, or it can be a weapon that Satan uses to kill your faith. C.S. Lewis, the famous Christian writer from the 20th century, wrote this in his personal diary that has since been published, titled A Grief Observed. It's a book that chronicles his personal feelings and his coping after the death of his wife. And here's what he has to say in that book. He says, The conclusion I dread is not so there is no God after all, but so this is what God is really like. Deceive yourselves no longer. His biggest concern in grieving over the loss of his wife... ...was not, is there a God, or I guess there is no God... ...if he allows my wife to die. But his biggest concern was, God doesn't love me. His biggest concern, his biggest worry was coming to that conclusion... ...while coping over the loss of his wife. It wasn't coming to the conclusion that there was no God... But it was coming to the conclusion, this is what he feared, that he would believe after all of this, that God never loved him to begin with, after taking his wife. Now many people clothe that mentality with this, there is no God mindset. Many people want you to believe that they just don't believe in God. They went through a traumatic experience, and they'll tell you that they don't believe in God because a loving God would never allow that to happen. But their real issue, it has nothing to do with whether or not God exists. This is most people. I can't speak for everybody, but most people, it's not a matter of is there a God. It's a matter of does God actually love me, and many people really do believe that He doesn't. And they base that judgment off of an experience that they've been through, a bad experience. Experiences that I would never want to understand in my life. This individual who has since for I suppose a year now fled from the Lord, who has withdrawn from Christianity, when I went to talk to this professor, he told me something that this individual told, told him a short time before he had officially renounced his faith. And he said that this guy told him this, if there is a God, I don't see how he would want to be in relationship with me. And this individual was going through some tough things shortly before he renounced his faith in Christ. The issue with grief, friend, let me tell you, is not coming to the conclusion that God doesn't exist. What Satan wants you to know in your grief is that God doesn't love you. And take note that Satan, being the father of lies, don't take it as a surprise when I tell you that that is a lie. That God does care about you a lot. God literally shed his own son's blood on your behalf. God cares about you. Judas Iscariot is another great example. Probably the best one of what not to do with your grief. Many people, especially in this westernized view of Judas Iscariot, he's often depicted as the antagonist of the Gospels. He's Jesus' arch nemesis. He is the bond villain of the New Testament. And that's just not the case. Judas Iscariot was a bad guy, but he's not the bad guy. Judas Iscariot isn't the type of person you read about and you hope that he just falls. This man is probably the biggest tragedy in the entire Bible. A man who walked with Christ, who was anointed by Christ to cast out demons. This man followed after the Son of God, but for what was it? Thirty pieces of silver sold him out. And a lot of people think that's where his story ends. It isn't. Judas Iscariot was overcome with the reality of what he did. He tried giving those 30 pieces of silver back to the religious leaders and they wouldn't take it. And I believe, and I'm just thinking about this now, the Bible even records how he, in his grief, threw the money back at them. He threw it at them because he wanted nothing to do with it. And instead of repenting for what he had done, he went out into a field that he had purchased and he hung himself. He committed suicide. A man who just a few days ago was walking with Jesus and preaching the kingdom of God through Christ just committed suicide. Grief is very real and Christians do grieve. Many people will tell you that if you grieve you're not a real Christian. Dude, that's not true. Uh Grief is not the problem. How you handle your grief can be the problem. The issue is not that you're grieving Everybody grieves. God grieves. The Bible mentions that God grieves whenever he has to condemn a soul to eternal damnation. That grieves the heart of God. And if God grieves, I don't think it's too sinful for me to grieve either as a child of God. Especially if it's over somebody who just renounced their faith. I'm not a prophet. I'm not a seer. I can't look into the future and tell you that they'll ever come back to Christ. I have that painful uncertainty about it. And only that peace that Paul talked about that surpasses all understanding can get me through things like that. And us through things like that, just to be honest, when we don't know what's going to happen. There is a peace that surpasses understanding that God will give those who seek Him. But, something that I've always found to be interesting. Something that, ironically, I heard from this individual who is not walking with God today. He mentioned one time when I heard him preach that... Whenever he was a boy, he saw this book at his family's house, and all he could remember was the name of the book, and the name of the book was, If you're going through hell, don't stop. If you're going through hell, don't stop. That's the worst time to stop. That's the worst time to stop following after God. David would say, even if I made my bed in hell, God is still with me. But the thing about that is, some people read that in the Psalms and they think that it's okay to be in hell because God will still be with you. Just read the rest of the Psalms. I mean, the end goal of the Christian is not hell for very obvious reasons. The end goal is to get to heaven. But the point of that Psalm is to say that God can lead me through hell if He has to. God will be with me if I had to walk through hell itself because I'm His. I'm not the devil's. I'm not the world's. I am God's temple. I am God's. We grieve. Grief is very important. And we grieve over many things. Mainly having to do with loss. Not just the loss of our family members. But the loss of very close friends. Who we love very dearly. The loss of brothers and sisters in Christ. That we've known for just about all of our lives. Who they're not here anymore. And we grieve over things like that. Grief. ...is often akin to fear. One way that people mishandle grief... ...is they use it to make them afraid. They use grief as access to be living in fear. C.S. Lewis would also write in that diary... ...that we now have of the book called A Grief Observed. He would also say this when grieving over his wife. He said, nobody ever told me that grief was so much like fear... And I think that many people can relate to that because whenever people go through grief, especially right after, right after the loved one has passed away, many people, I've seen people go through what, what borderline panic attacks whenever they first, first learned that their loved one had died. People breathing out very heavily, hyperventilating, people just... uncontrollably uncontrollably crying at the same time just kind of for just a split second almost losing their minds because of how bizarre that that information is that news is (coughs) Troy, my dog he died in the back seat of my car and we had just left the vet's office and I didn't know what to do the vet was about 30 minutes away from home and We were just down the road from the vet's office, and I just remember looking uh, in the review mirror, and he was breathing one minute. I looked back at the road, and then I looked back in the mirror, and he just—he wasn't breathing. He, I knew that he was dead. But there, just for a second, my mind was absolutely scrambled. I had absolutely no idea what to do. Well, do I do I take this dead dog back home for? A 20 minute drive and then bury him when I get home? Or do I take him back to the vet knowing that they can't do anything but just, I don't know, just taking him back to the vet? And I took him back to the vet and, you know, sure enough there was nothing that they could have done which, you know, I'm I'm grateful for all that they tried to do with that dog but it was painful. It was painful. How much more painful has it been whenever we've had to cope with an actual person passing away. This church together, we coped, we coped, we grieved whenever Sister Marie died, when Angela died, when Mimi died. She would always sit in that little area right, right over there. We grieved whenever these people died. We know that they're in heaven today, but we grieved because they're not with us now. That's why we grieved. They have that blessed assurance totally realized right now, and if I can tell you this there's not a chance that they would ever want to come back to this earth for for anything Mimi would not want to come back to earth just to see me she's with Jesus that's good enough for everything that she lived her life for she has the full down payment now and that she's content where she is I guarantee you that everybody who's come through this church who we've we've gotten to know and we've gotten to love who left Who the Lord took to be with Him. We grieved over these people. But the Lord got us through all of it. The Lord got us through all of it. The thing about grief and fear is that we need to understand God has the same answer for everybody. But how God shares that answer, how God delivers that answer, maybe for lack of a better word is different, not depending on who he is, but depending on who we are, how we're thinking, what we're like, what our mindset is like, whether or not we're allowing our emotions to just dictate our every move. And I think a good example of this, especially when it comes to God's will for our lives, is whenever you compare two prophets in the Old Testament, Jonah and Elijah. Both of these are men who fled when God did not tell them to flee, And yet the Lord responded to each person very, very differently. Jonah, a man who fled from Nineveh when God wanted him to go to Nineveh. The Lord sent a fish to eat him and then spit him back out. And then Jonah was like, okay, I'll go to Nineveh now. Elijah was very, very different. Fled when God did not tell him to flee out of the will of God. And yet the Lord comforted him. Why is that? Well, it's important to look at why these men fled from the will of God. Why Elijah fled and why Jonah fled are very different reasons. They were both in the wrong. They should not have done what they did, but there were still very different reasons why they did this. You see, our emotions, as I just said, should not dictate what we do, especially when it comes to responding to the call of God in our lives. If we do that, if we live in our emotions, our emotions will kill us. And we will not live what they call the victorious Christian life. Because we define who we are, and you shouldn't be defining who you are. Especially when you're going through a depression, when you're going through anxiety. You are not your own therapist, friend. You shouldn't be. God is your comforter, and Christ tells you who you are. But Jonah if you go back and read that little book in the Old Testament, you learn some pretty revealing things about Jonah. It's not just fear as it regards why he's running away from Nineveh. This man did not... He was a very, very proud Jew. And I mean that in a bad way because he did not want these Gentiles to be redeemed. He wanted those wicked Assyrians who sinned as much as they talked those Gentiles. They deserved God's judgment. I'm not going to go preach to them. God sent a fish to... Put them on the right path. But there was more to it than fear. He was afraid. Oh yeah. And if you and I were called to go and preach to Nineveh. The way that they were living at this time. We'd probably be afraid too. These were barbaric people. And the Lord would. We know how the whole story goes. We know that they would repent and turn to God. And history shows us the blessings that the Lord would give that city. For the next hundred years. But. When it comes to Jonah, there was more to it than the fact that he was afraid of Nineveh. Jonah did not want these Gentiles to be redeemed. He didn't want these Gentiles to come to repentance. And the Lord greatly chastised him because of that. You then have Elijah, who at one point was called to flee from his enemies by God. This, then, is one of the greatest examples of a man of faith that you'll find in the Bible, the Old Testament prophet Elijah, because he had, no, he had absolutely nothing going for him on the material side of things. He had to prophesy a godly word to some of the most ungodly rulers in Israel's history, Ahab and Jezebel. I mean, totally non-ideal king and queen for Israel for his time. And there was a time he was faithful to the Lord, he was always faithful, he was faithful to God, he said what God wanted him to say, he did what God called him to do. And there was a time when Jezebel basically put a hit out on Elijah, that's how we would describe it today, and the Lord did command Elijah to flee from Jezebel and go into hiding for a period of time, and he did that. But this last time, right after the showdown at Mount Carmel, as people call it, which is one of the wildest, and I mean that in a great way, wildest, displays of faith from a godly man in the whole Bible. Right after that, Jezebel puts out another threat against Elijah's life, and Elijah flees Jezebel again. But this time, the Lord did not call Elijah to leave. He was afraid. And he allowed his fear to overtake him. And out of fear, he left Jezebel. He fled from Jezebel. Fleeing under the call of God and fleeing out of fear are two very different things. And you want to be sure that if you're fleeing, it's because God wants you to flee. God wants you and I to flee from sin. He doesn't want us to flee out of fear, though. The thing about this, though, is that Elijah, one of the greatest prophets of the Bible... This dude's now in the middle of, I'm guessing, some little desert area, sleeping under a little broom tree, a juniper tree, and then he would go hide in a cave after that. And yet the Lord gave him sleep, and then the Lord fed him, the Lord gave him water, and then the Lord had him sleep some more. I mean, the Lord absolutely took care of this man. Why is that? Because Elijah... Was, he was his own problem entirely. Jonah was too, but I don't know. Maybe maybe for lack of a better word. Elijah Jonah wanted God to kill the Ninevites. Elijah said to the Lord whenever he hid under the broom tree, He said, Lord, take my life because I can't do this, what you've called me to do. The man was so low and so unbelievably depressed. That he asked God to take his life away from him because he didn't want to do this. And who could blame him? I mean, Jezebel and Ahab. This is the nation that God established. And somehow, throughout history, it's gotten to the point to where these two very ungodly people are killing the prophets of God. The ones in charge of the nation that God established. I can see where he's coming from. But nevertheless, he was out of the will of God. He allowed that fear to consume him, and he disobeyed God, even though he was afraid, even though he was depressed. You can't use these things as excuse, because disobedience is still disobedience. But at the end of the day, Jonah, Elijah, they both accomplished God's will. After the Lord cared for Elijah and ministered to Elijah, the Lord simply commissioned Elijah to go, to go continue doing what God wanted him to do. And Elijah did just that. Jonah had to be chastised in order to pursue, to go after what God had called him to do. Elijah had to be cared for to do what God wanted him to do. Both were going to do the same thing, to do God's will for their lives. To continue to go and, to go and uh, prophesy, to minister. But how the Lord dealt with these two people were very, very different. And that's how God is with Everybody. When it comes to accomplishing the will of God for our lives, I've seen people become so unbelievably stressed out about God's will for their lives, especially over the last four years of my life. I've seen so many people, I mean, just stressed to the max over whether or not God wants me to go into ministry, whether what God wants me to do. It's my spouse in Bible college. Where are they, Lord? I mean, just unbelievable stuff. Does God want me to go be a youth pastor in Alabama over the summer? I mean, just lose sleep over stuff like this. And friend, let me tell you something. I can't tell you what God's will is for your life. Unless the Lord gives me a word, and you're just going to have to take it by faith and believe that it's a word from the Lord, friend. And even then, you're going to have to discern whenever people tell you what God's will. You're going to have to discern if that's actually a word from God or not. But when it comes to God's will for our lives, there are two very solid things about the will of God for everybody that we know in the Bible. We know that Peter, from his writings to the churches in Asia Minor, he would say this, We know for sure that it's not God's will that any should perish, but it's His will that all should come to repentance. And then Paul would write before that to the churches at Thessalonica, he would say, This is the will of God for your life, your sanctification. So those two verses already let us know very clearly what God's will is for our lives as His people. And it presents two questions to us, am I saved and am I submitting myself to the sanctification process? And friend, if you cannot answer both of those questions with a resounding yes, then don't lose sleep about whether or not God wants you to go on a mission trip to Arizona over the next uh, summer. Don't lose sleep over whether or not God wants you to get married or whatever. If you can't even confirm that you are for sure a living, breathing Christian, don't lose sleep over things like ministry when you have other things to be concerned about. Because it's God's will that we be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. That goes above our ministry. That goes above our witnessing. That goes above our families. Who we are in Christ is paramount above everything else. The Bible has this very, very evangelistic thrust about it. Everything in some way, shape, or form is about Jesus and what He did for you and I 2,000 years ago. It's all about Jesus and what He's done for us. And these Beatitudes, these opening teachings in the Sermon on the Mount, do have that evangelistic meaning to them. Because there is no greater comfort for you to find than the comfort that you find in Christ friend. In these two verses that we read about, Blessed are the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. If you look at that word poor, that phrase poor in spirit, it just refers to a deep humility. It refers to not someone who is just materially in poverty. It refers to someone who is poor in spirit. Someone who is very, very humble. And given the context of these Beatitudes, how they apply to Christ, this can speak easily. We can see how this speaks of those who are poor in spirit in the sense that someone is recognizing their own spiritual bankruptcy apart from God. These people recognize that they are sinful. And these are the kind of people... That in recognizing their own sinfulness, express faith in Christ and what he's done. Because if I'm not good enough, Christ definitely will be. And these people inherit the kingdom of heaven. And then we read in the fourth verse, blessed are those who mourn. That word mourn speaks of the mourning or the grieving over one's own sin. I looked it up in the Greek, uh, and that word comfort, the Greek word for comfort... Is parakaleo. And it has to do with being called upon urgently. To be made glad. That's what it means. That's what Jesus is talking about. When he's talking about being comforted. And whenever we hear that phrase. Being made glad. Our minds just race to. That plethora of times in the Bible. Where that phrase is used. Like Psalm ninety. Like Psalm 92, verse 4, the psalmist says for you, O Lord, have made me glad. By your deeds I will triumph by the works of your hands. By the finished work of Jesus Christ, you and I could triumph over grief. You and I could triumph over grief. And in the original Hebrew, I looked it up just out of curiosity. And the word of Lord in that text, because y'all know that every time... The word Lord, especially in all capital letters, is used in the Old Testament particularly. That's actually in the original Hebrew language, a reference to one of the original Hebrew names of God, Jehovah, uh, Jireh, Jehovah Sipkenu, uh, uh, uh what else is there? Oh well, I looked it up. And this word for Lord in the original Hebrew is not Jehovah, which is what I was expecting, but instead the Hebrew word for God used in this text in the original Hebrew language is Yahweh. And the thing about the name Yahweh is that it is simply the Hebrew name of the God of Israel. There's no ministry purpose behind it. It's not as though I'm reading Jehovah uh, what is it? Uh, Jehovah Shama? Is that the Lord who heals? As the Bible counts, it's not a Jehovah name in the sense that I'm supposed to get a certain aspect of God from this. It's simply God. Through God, through God's works, I will triumph. Not just through God's healing works will I triumph. God's sanctifying works will I triumph. But simply through the Lord Himself, I'm going to triumph. Through God Himself. That's the name Yahweh. It's it's a surprisingly basic name. And there's an interesting history to that name for God in the Hebrew language. Because the further you go back into history, the way that Yahweh is spelled today, just so we can pronounce it, is Y-A-H-W-E-H, Yahweh. But when this was first being written down, the name of God was so sacred to the Hebrews... That it was written in a way that you and I cannot even pronounce. It was written in a way that cannot even be pronounced because the name of the Lord was that sacred to them. Today we call this this original writing the Tetragrammaton. And I have no idea why they call it that. I don't know. But the original writing of this was simply YHWH. And don't try to pronounce it. You're going to have to include a vowel in there somewhere. Don't try to pronounce it. You cannot pronounce it. I cannot pronounce it. The whole point of is so that you and I cannot pronounce it. Okay? And even then, you'll notice, I added some vowels just to make it sound kind of normal. But that first original Hebrew name of God is so sacred that I can't even tell you how it's pronounced. Many people believe that however this is pronounced, that this is really what the Lord said to Moses during the burning bush experience because Yahweh simply means all sufficient, self-existing, things like that. I am that I am. And the great I am that I am, this very sacred God wants to have a relationship with the world. God wants to have a relationship with us. God wants to express His saving power and His sanctifying power with each and every single one of us. God wants this relationship between you and I to be absolutely personal. Now, there are very, very false ways that Christians deal with the mourning over their sin, with the grieving over their sin. And I I want to dwell on this just for a second. I don't mean to hold you hostage here today or tonight, but there is something I want to talk about because some of you have probably heard of the phrase yourselves, the suffering Christian. And the idea there is that in order to gain forgiveness with God, or maybe not even forgiveness, but in order to get some kind of pleasure in in God's sight, you kind of have to cause yourself to suffer in order to gain a good standing with God. It's not even necessarily for salvation it's just something that people do. During the Black Plague in the middle in the Middle Ages in Europe, there were these groups of supposed Christians called, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, flagellants. I don't know if I pronounced that right. But this was a group of people, supposedly of the, of the, the Christian circle, who would literally walk around all day with a whip, and they would just whip themselves over their shoulders. And they would physically torture themselves like this. And the idea was that they thought that the Black Plague was God's judgment on the world. So they believed that if they harmed themselves, that somehow this would earn them forgiveness with God. Because they were were punishing themselves for whatever they did to earn the Black Plague. And the issue with that is that, first of all, you cannot add to the suffering that Christ did for you 2,000 years ago. And to act like you can. There's nothing humble about that. I'm sorry. That is false humility right there. Because there is no suffering that you can go through that earns you forgiveness with God. Christ did all the suffering in your place. That's the whole point of what we call substitutionary or whatever you'd say. Atonement. That Christ was our substitute. He suffered so I wouldn't have to suffer. And for me to respond to that by saying, oh let me suffer a little bit. That's pride. That's pride right there. And although I don't see any Christians walking around today whipping themselves over their shoulders with a whip, I do see some things that are a little concerning. I see perversion of certain practices that are very holy, but the way that some people do these things are not too holy, mainly when it concerns the Christian practice of fasting. I know people who think that whenever they fail God they have to fast, and it's not really the fact that they're fasting. Fasting is biblical and it's godly, and Christians ought to do it. But why you fast has a lot to say about your spiritual state. First of all, there is no victory over sin in a fast, friend. Every bit of victory over sin, you're gonna find that at Calvary's Cross. I don't know what that's the ministry of the Holy Spirit to the Christian. It's Jesus Christ and Him crucified. We fast whenever our faith It needs to be fixed or needs to be strengthened. The purpose of a fast isn't just to eat less. The purpose of a fast is to do away with whatever is hindering your walk with God, even if it's for some time. And in exchange, in all the time that you've been given to that thing, dedicating that time to prayer, Bible reading... Seeking the Lord, seeking God's face, worship, replacing all of that time with that hindrance with time with God. That's a fast. And you don't fast to earn favor with God. You fast because you have favor with God. We don't fast to gain a better standing with God. We don't fast so God can somehow be better to us, friend. God's not going to be any better to you than He already is. When He saved your life from hell, that's about as good as anybody could have ever been to you. And God is just as good throughout your entire Christian life in everything that He does. But these people, what they do, their mindset is that they are suffering because they are physically starving themselves. And because they are suffering, they are being good Christians. You're not being a good Christian. That's just like the whoever these people were that were whipping themselves. That is false humility because you are teaching yourself that you have to add to the sufferings of Jesus Christ on the cross. And secondly, that is legalism. That is pure legalism right there. And not only will you not obtain victory over sin through that, not only will you not obtain forgiveness with God because of this... But you will probably further fall into sin because whether you see it or not, your faith is not in the cross. Your faith is in the fast, And that's not where God wants you to have your faith. I preached a couple weeks ago from First Samuel about how misplaced faith could hurt you. It could hurt the church that you go to. It could hurt your family just because you don't believe in the right thing. When it comes to Christian faith, it's not just blind faith about whatever's out there. It is a specific kind of faith that is specifically placed in Jesus Christ and what he did for you and I. That's good enough for all of it. That's good enough for all of it. So the suffering Christian mentality, it's a wrong mentality because it says to God, Here, let me help you out. The wrong mentality. You don't suffer. Suffering is normal. I mean, we suffer. Grieving really is a form of suffering. But the Christian identity is not in suffering. The Christian identity is found in the victory that Christ has provided. Ensuring that we would never have to suffer, especially the way that he suffered. The devil tempts us. The world tempts us. Our flesh may even tempt ourselves from time to time. We might cause emotional harm to ourselves. We might be hurt by other people. Some of us were raised in abusive homes and we were beaten, we were were brought up in ways that we should not have been brought up and we had to suffer a lot but God has brought us through all of it. And that's where the Christian identity is found, it's not found in the trial itself, it's found in how God can bring you through whatever trial you go through, whatever you're going through, God can bring you through it. Have you ever thought about why whenever the Hebrews actually got to the Red Sea that God didn't split it apart right then and there? I mean, the end goal was so that they get out or get away from Egypt. And then they get to the Red Sea and God's not really doing anything. They even start saying to Moses, okay, do you just want us to go back to Egypt? Because, I mean, to them it looked like God had absolutely no idea what he was doing, or at least Moses Have you ever realized that God waited just until Pharaoh showed up to part the Red Sea? Have you ever noticed when reading about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, God could have, in his sovereign creating power, sustained those flames from even coming into the furnace at all? God can do that. But God allowed the flames, those hot flames, to consume i say consume, he allowed those flames to be there with those boys in that furnace. Because just like the Red Sea, just like the furnace, God doesn't just want you to see all that he can do. He wants your adversary to see that all he can do. Whenever Paul would write to the Colossians, he would say that Christ made a great display, or something like that, of all of the forces of hell at Calvary's cross. You and I know what God is capable of doing, and so does the devil. So does the devil. So grieving is normal. It's a thing that happens, but the Lord can bring us through whatever it is that we're going through. Christians grieve, but how we respond to our grief is very important. As I said earlier, grief can either be something that you allow the Lord to lead you through, or it could be something that the devil will use to kill your faith. But the thing about it is is that you if you can trust Jesus with your soul, you can trust Him with absolutely anything. So if you have a soul problem, give it to Jesus. If you have a health problem, give it to Jesus. If you have an emotional problem, give it to Jesus. Whatever problem you have, give it to Jesus, and He's going to make it all right. Amen? Amen. Well, once again, Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You for all that You've done for us. And we thank you, God, that you're with us each and every single step of this Christian walk. We thank you that you lead us, that you guide us. We thank you that we can say that we are led of the Spirit, that we are empowered by the blood of Christ. And we bless your name, God. There's not enough thanks that we can give you for what not only what you've done for us, but what you keep on doing for us. We love you, Lord. We ask that you give us a wonderful week, that you bless us, that you give us comfort. Lord, that you lead us further into this great path of righteousness, God, that you talk about in your word. And we'll be sure to give you all the praise and all the glory and all of the honor. And we say this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Amen.